where I do think there is racism in the system, and I think, interestingly enough, that racism is directed towards white working class kids as well, which is that the expectations are so low, generally, that people just think bullying is normal. So we should just accept bullying in school. And low-level disruption is normal, so we should just accept that. And I want to say to people, no, it's not normal. We can make it so kids behave themselves, and we can make it so that they learn loads. Hello, welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser, and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting and well-known people and try and sort of drill down into their core beliefs, work out what they're all about, and uh, have an interesting conversation. And I'm here with the delightful Catherine Burblesing, educationalist, head teacher, and well-known for that speech at the Tory party conference, which we will talk about in a minute. (laughs) She smiles. (laughs) Um, Catherine, we normally start by talking a little bit about you and where you come from and your background and your childhood and all that sort of stuff. So perhaps you might tell us where you grew up and uh, something about the home in which you grew up. Sure. Um, I grew up in Toronto until the age of 15. Um, My parents are from the Caribbean. My mum's from Jamaica. My father's from Guyana. uh, And have a sister, a younger sister. And we had a very modest household, mainly because my dad um, spent all of my childhood bringing his family over from Guyana. And so they used to stay with us. And they would not be particularly well-educated. And we would find them jobs in places like McDonald's and things. And um, they would come, and I remember one of my old uncles who came, and uh, and one day it snowed, and he looked outside the window and put his hand out just to feel the snow because he'd never felt never snow seen in his it. life. <laughs> so um, yeah, we, you know, my my sister wore hand-me-downs from me, and um, what did your dad do for work? He was a lecturer at university, and my oh, mother okay. was a nurse. Okay, and. Uh, and yeah, we did. They they were a typical immigrant family in that they were trying very hard to give their children a better life than what they'd had, and my father was also trying to enable you know his his the rest of his family the possibility because in those days you would sponsor your family to come over uh, to Canada and um, and have a better life too. So what did he teach? English literature. Okay, right, right, right. And he specialised in Caribbean literature. Okay, so there was an it was an educated fam it was an educated background. Books and so forth were a part of from the... my dad. Yeah, my mother wasn't so much, but um, definitely from my father. An extended family, so you're constantly sort of being amongst cousins and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, from Guyana, and then my mother's family uh, were spread around North America. We used to. Uh, go and visit my grandparents in 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 uh, New York, and then eventually in Florida, and then we have other family in California, uh, and it's more of a, a mixed background in that way. I mean, you know, my Guyanese family were just kind of really dirt poor and kind of hardworking more so, and my mother's family is a bit more colourful, so. You know, I, I have a cousin in prison and that kind of thing. You know? right, right. <laughs> um, okay, colourful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And was and so you went to school in Canada, and that was uh... yeah. Went to school in Canada till the age of fifteen, um, and uh, and then we came over here. My father um, had a sabbatical, so he came over to Britain. We also used to come over to Britain every summer, actually, because my father was obsessed with the cricket. And in those days, in the nineteen eighties, oh, very good. Yes, well, the West Indies, of course, used to thrash England. 
Um, and so my father enjoyed those days yes, and we would come over to England and he would watch the cricket and uh, this was in Brixton he had a very good friend who lived in Brixton so we always stayed in Brixton I feel I sort of grew up in Brixton because I was there every year in the summer and the old ritzy cinema and I remember going to watch Drugstore Cowboy all night you know it was it was open all night for 24 hours and you know at 17 we, we would get dressed up and put on makeup and go to the fridge and try and get in I used you know? to probably I probably saw you there <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right okay <laughs> So, yeah. Um, yeah, so and that was those summers. And then when we finally came to live here, uh, when I was 15, we lived in Leamington Spa. Uh, OK. Yeah. Did um, he get a job at University Warwick, Warwick or yeah, something? That's yeah, right, yeah, that's right. Okay. So he was positioned there for the year. <clears throat> and then they went back to Canada and I stayed on. And I, uh, and I haven't left, really. I'm, I'm still here. The plan was for me to go back at various different points. I never did. Um, and then I ended up at Oxford University and I stayed there for those years. I did French and philosophy. Um, and where, uh, did you, where did you, what college did you New go? college. Oh, okay, right, right, where right. I was at. Right, right, and, okay. um, and yeah, and then I became a teacher. Uh, and I've been teaching ever since. Well, you know, I'm now a head teacher, so I don't actually teach anymore. But um, so that so let, let's let's just take all that a bit slowly, because what yeah. I quite like to know, that's the sort of like that's the bio, isn't mm-hmm. it? But what I want to see how the sort of the, the you and the values of the you mm-hmm. sort of develop yes. over over that period. So yeah. it was the, politically was the home in which you grew up sounds yeah. like a sort of progressive left wing, very, so. very left wing. Okay. Um, so Chetty Jagan, who was the uh, prime minister, president of um, Guyana, he was a, a, a communist. I mean, um, and uh, my father's great friends with him and uh, is, is very much. I mean, I, I don't think my father would call himself a communist, but he would say he was a socialist. And uh, we were a very left wing household um, and all of my father's friends. And it was very much, um, you know, ethnic minorities tend to uh, be on the left. Uh, although what's interesting is that I would say that my father is a very small C conservative in terms of his values and uh, the way he brought us up. Um, and That's I don't not know... an uncommon yes. combination, though, no. is it? No, especially in Caribbean yeah. people. Uh, it's, 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 it's very standard to be yeah. a small C conservative and vote on the left. And especially in the day, um, it made sense to vote on the left because... Uh, it was the left that were kind of on your side as an ethnic minority. So um, I get that. I think my parents are pretty horrified by the way things have turned out with me. That your, your, your parents are still alive? They're both still alive yeah. and yeah. I'll be seeing them next week when I fly over to Canada to see them. Um, I, I think that, yeah, they, they don't quite understand why I think the things I do. I mean... They get it when I talk about the details of school and kids and what families need to do better and so on. They they agree with all that stuff. But it's the it's the business of kind of eventually kind of describing myself as kind of on the right, which I yes. I, I suppose Traitor. I do. Yeah, they don't really get that. And they you know, when we have you know, at Christmas with extended family and so on, you know, when they're talking about whatever it is you talk about, you know, the politics of the day. My mother is constantly kind of glaring at me <laughs> as if to say, do not say anything. You know, So I just sit quietly. Oh, do you? Just, oh, yeah. No, I don't say anything because <laughs> I don't want to embarrass my parents. And, and do, do you, you haven't, don't have a tradition of sort of big family barneys and rows about things? And uh... No, 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 because everyone thinks in a very similar way. Because it's an ethnic minority understanding of, you know, the left is good and the right is bad. So everybody just sits around sort of, uh, agreeing with what I mean you might get into smaller discussions but you certainly wouldn't have a right left discussion ever because nobody is on the right, right so yeah. and, and 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 
Is, is religion a part of any of this mix at all? Yes, yes, very much so. So my mother is a born again Christian. So um. she's a Jamaican born again Christian. You know, <clears throat> you imagine what that looks like. Typically, that's my mum. You know, she yeah. will stand on street corners and she will hand out um, pamphlets oh, to people. Right, okay. She will sing with people in the street. You know, so a when... Baptist tradition or. Well, we did go to a Baptist church. Then right. we went to a Presbyterian church. We went to various different churches growing up. I stopped sort of going uh, in my teens. Um, but uh, my my mom, like in Brixton, she really, you know, really fit in because people are singing all the time in yeah, Brixton yeah, 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 about yeah, yeah. God. And she would just go and, jo- go and join them, you know. <laughs> um, so my father, very much sort of Presbyterian, just kind of... Uh, just much more small C conservative, yeah. right? My mother yeah. is much more kind of outlandish and and, yeah. and and has a lot more energy. My father's just much more straight laced. <laughs> so when you go up to uni, uh, I suspect you take quite a lot of all of that lefty. I'm a total of, lefty. You would take I, when all that lefty I, when baggage. When I when I go you. to the university, I'm a complete lefty. I'm I'm. A, you know, you, this what's your brand? Was there a sort of were you a SWP or anything like I that? I would talk or? to the S. I wasn't, but I would talk to the SWP guys like quite a lot. I would talk to this guy who used to sell living Marxism. I used to have discussions, and I, I would disagree sometimes with him. But we used to talk a lot, um, and I I was very involved in the whole black. Uh, part of Oxford so in those days there were very very few I mean there still are few but there were really there were non-existent black people at Oxford at the time so this is in the early 90s and so there was a black caucus group and I ran a, a black women's group um, at New College they, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. is establishment so, as it gets. yeah at New College but with all of the students from across the university because right, there right, were very right. few yeah, yeah, and yeah. you'd have like a like a black caucus uh, uh, dance or whatever, you know, a party and everybody mm. would show up. So you kind of knew all the black people across Oxford. And um, and in those days, you know, it's it's not the case now, I don't think. But in those days, when you'd go to a college, for instance, and try and walk into a college, the porters would stop you and say, well, you know, what are you doing here? And then you'd have to explain that you were a student because there were so few of us. I don't really blame the porters, but I get, you know, that there was a difficulty in kind of trying to fit in. So those of us who were black would get together to kind of just talk about that. And that was quite nice. Um, and... Um, and yeah, and then it's so. And what I did at Oxford was there was a group that used to send black students at Oxford into the inner city in Birmingham, Manchester, and London mainly uh, to go and talk to uh, young kids in schools. I mean, of any race, really, although they were often predominantly ethnic minority. Um, and we would tell them, well, look at me, I'm at Oxford. And I'm doing well. You can do it. So actually, maybe you can too. And don't imagine that it's just a bunch of posh guys. Actually, there are people just like you who are there. And I would go and talk. And I would see kids changing their minds. I mean, it was amazing. You would start and they'd say, oh, I don't want anything to do with this. And at the end, they'd think, they'd say, oh, well, maybe I'll apply. And um, that was what got me interested in teaching, was doing that. Because, you know, you'd go for these kind of McKinsey drinks, you know, like all the big firms would come along to kind of wine and dine Oxford students to say, hey, come and apply. And I went along and thought, there is no way I'm doing this with my life. Good for you. There was no way I was going to do that. So when I, my heart, when I used to teach at Oxford for a bit and my right. heart used to sink. When right. I would have students and I'd have such hope for them, yes. and they would end up where yes. are you going? Oh, this accountancy thing, or this. Sort of I like, know. And it was oh, please. There's all this philosophy, all this sort of like really interesting stuff, and you're I sort know. of like, that's. I, I, I'm sure that probably reflects my own prejudices, but it used to really sort of like, 
you know, you, there's so much love and attention and interest and all these ideas and so forth, and you just felt their future had it all squashed out of them. Well, I mean, my job, I feel like as a headmistress, I feel like we've got to give them the basics, get them out there, and then they'll do what they want. And I expect some of them will become dentists and some of them will become doctors and some of them will go and work for KPMG and some of them will become teachers and others will become revolutionaries. I mean, people, you know, for yes, me, of course, of course. I just thought with my life, there was no way that I was going to be marching into the city every day. And I have nothing against people who do that. It just wasn't right for me. I, I really wanted to kind of change the world. That was my thing. I wanted to change the world. So, and I do believe that everybody who becomes a teacher wants to change the world. So um, when you're at uni, Marxism is one of the expressions of your mm -hmm. way of wanting to change the world. Yeah. So that's right. where did Damascus, where is Damascus right. in this story? Because, you know, that's not where you are now. Yeah, no, no, not at all. Um, well, I went into teaching and one of the reasons why I went into teaching was I there was a lot of black underachievement at the time. I mean, there still is, but then it was really bad. And, uh, and I thought, uh, I genuinely just believed what everyone said, which was that it was because of racism. It was institutionalized racism. It was white racist teachers who weren't picking on, you know, the black boy who had his hand up and that kind of thing. And I just believed that because that's what everybody told me. Um, and then I went into teaching and I'll never forget, um, Diane Abbott had this uh, Raising Black Achievement uh, event that would happen every year uh, at the Queen Elizabeth Hall. Um, and, you know, hundreds, thousands of people would be there. And... Um, uh, mainly teachers and various people would talk about basically how racist the system was. And when is um, this roughly? When are we talking about here? So this in is the, in late nineties, you know, yeah. uh, yeah. two thousand something like that. And um, I took along a, a white colleague of mine who had been working at this school for over twenty years. Uh, it was ninety five percent black boys. It was a boys' school, uh, Church of England school, and it was tough kids, you know, from the inner city, etc. I've only ever worked in the inner city. I've only ever worked with with tough intakes. I mean, that's what I do. It's is this in thing. South London? This is this, this is maybe this maybe yeah. a school close to where my parish is actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Okay, yeah. so yeah. and we, I took him to this thing. It was a Saturday, so he'd given up his Saturday to come along to this event that I thought was going to be really interesting and. You know, he was a teacher working with black boys. Be great. And he sat there and listened to all these people, both black and white, telling him that he was a racist and that uh, the reason why black boys didn't do as well was because he was a racist. And I was mortified. I was just, I wanted the ground to swallow me up because here was this guy who had given his life to teaching, who had done such good work with these boys and was doing good work at that time. You know, like these kids loved him and he'd saved some of them literally from, I mean, I'm talking about situations where kids would be involved in something in the police and they'd be jumping into his car just to get them out of the way. I mean, like the, I, stories I could tell you about the way that man had changed those boys' lives. And um, here I dragged him to this thing on his Saturday to be told he was a racist and I was so embarrassed I was embarrassed and humiliated and I I just uh, anyway so that was one thing that was a turning point for me because I listened to them and I thought this isn't true what you're saying isn't true and it might be all right for the uh, IOE you know uh, Institute of Education professors standing up there telling us how we're all racist well come and visit my classroom come and see the kids and come and see the families and then make that judgment because what you're saying I know I can see it right I can see that what you're saying isn't true and, and, and what was it they were saying? Well, it was us who were letting these kids down. But what I saw time and time again were uh, not just black kids, all kids who, um, who were misbehaving, who weren't, um, who weren't working hard enough, who weren't going home and really making the effort that was required. Now, what you might say is that the system wasn't forcing them 
to work harder. That's true. But what wasn't the case was what they were arguing, and they still argue, that uh, black kids were being picked on or black kids are being excluded because they're black. That's absolute nonsense. The whole nonsense that they start that they say at the moment, <sighs> oh, these kids are involved in knife crime because they're being excluded from schools, i.e., these racist teachers are, are forcing these black kids out onto the streets and then they get involved in knife crime. It is an absolute nonsense. And it's the same, this is 20 years ago that this is, I'm talking about, right? It, it, the same narrative has been pumped out and, and teachers themselves are taken in by this narrative. First of all, a whole load of these kids are being excluded because they're carrying knives in school. So funny that they didn't get involved in knife crime because uh, they were already involved in knife crime before they got excluded. Secondly, if you keep those kids in school, then what, what these people don't understand is the concept of contagion, right? They don't understand that if you have one bad apple, you will suddenly have five bad apples if you don't have any, if, if, there, if there are no consequences to your behavior. So in that, you see, what's interesting is that I'll say, no, these teachers aren't racist. And I don't think they are in the way that it is being described. But where I do think there is racism in the system, and I think, interestingly enough, that racism is directed towards white working class kids as well. So, you know white working class kids are black, essentially, is what I'm saying, um, which is that the expectations are so low, generally, that people just think bullying is normal. So we should just accept bullying in school. And uh, low level disruption is normal. So we should just accept that. And I want to say to people, no, it's not normal. We can make it so kids behave themselves and we can make it so that they learn loads. But that requires a certain level of um, commitment and uh, dedication and, and real drive from the leadership in the school. And they have to believe it. They have to want it. And, um, and, 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 and sadly, the system is set up in such a way that I feel leaders are undermined and teachers are undermined. And it's far more complex than just saying, oh, teachers are a bunch of racists. Your critics will say this all sounds like a sort of return to the 1950s in terms of educational standards. I imagine they will, actually, that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, I mean, is, is, that, is, that, is that a fair comment? I mean, is... OK, so, uh, for instance, when one of the big things that I think is really important is teaching British history... British literature and uh, helping our children feel like they are British. I think that's particularly important for ethnic minorities who often are told by the media, by their own communities and by 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 their friends and so on, that they're not British. And in order for children to succeed in life, you need to feel like you are part of your country. If you're, if you're at odds with your country, then it's very difficult to just be part of the fabric, you know? Um, now, I think that that's really important, that all that British stuff is really important. Once upon a time in the 1970s or 1950s, when that stuff was taught, they didn't explain how there were a million Indian soldiers that uh, fought for Britain in World War II. They didn't talk about the Caribbean soldiers, you know, the hundreds of thousands of them who gave their lives. They, they don't... They, the, British history was whitewashed before, and that was wrong. So if people accuse me of going back to the 1950s, I'm not there, right? Um, I believe very much in teaching uh, a curriculum that is uh, true, right, that is real and that it has not been whitewashed. But I do believe in it being British. And the reason why I believe in it being British and in dead white men is because... Um, you know, people say about the best that's been thought and said, right? And uh, and that's not to say that white people are cleverer or better or any of that. But the fact is that because of the way history has fallen, <laughs> um, they have been able to produce 
for the most part, the best that's been thought and said. Men as well, not women, right? That's because they were in charge, right? Uh, you, you'd have been, I mean, <laughs> at, at university, if you'd have gone a bit later, you sounded like you'd have been a part of the roads must fall type of thing. And then you're, no, you mean no. then? Oh, I see. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah, no. When, no you're you're quite you, right. when you're at university, right. you probably would have been supportive of that I, sort of thing. I, I would have been. And now I'm very much against that. Roads should stand. And, um, and, <laughs> That's because I believe in that history and I believe in being critical of that history and I believe in teaching all the different parts of it and all the colours um, and, and in being as true as you can uh, because it's right that we should know our own history. Obviously, if you're growing up in China, you would learn Chinese history. We're in Britain, so we should learn our history. We should be proud of our flag. We sing God Save the Queen and Jerusalem and uh, I vow to thee my country because I believe that there is a nuclear family that you're part of, then you're part of your community, then you're part of your school and something bigger, which is your country. And belonging is so important. And you know why I know that? Because for so many years, I didn't feel I belonged, Right. Because my mother is Jamaican, my father's Guyanese, my father is Indian Guyanese, my mother is black Jamaican. So that mix does not really happen. You know, black and Indian doesn't really go together normally. And um, and then, uh, you know, my father's family, for instance, d- stopped speaking to my, mo- to my father for many years. I didn't even know I, my mother, my father's brother, who... Um, as four sons, I didn't know until I was 18 or so that I had these cousins. I didn't know they existed. Now, he was bringing over other family, but there were some who 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 just didn't like, didn't like what he had done, right, that he'd married a black woman. And um, so there... I, I, I'm a mixed-race kid growing up, and then I went to white schools, generally speaking, and in those days, in the 80s, you know, I, 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 I didn't really have any friends. I didn't have, um, you know, people didn't, you know, we'd have school dances and none of the boys would ever ask me to dance because I was like a zebra, you know, like I was brown. So, you know, there were no other black kids in the class. So I wasn't really a girl as far as they were concerned. I was odd. That wouldn't happen now. But in those days, I was a total outsider. And um, I, I mean, I'd always find friends along the way, but they were always the alternative kids, you know. I, I hear your uh, your passion is like uh, I'm sitting here crying. Okay, mm. so you, you can see this. Okay, so like, mm. and you're passionate, and, and what? So I know what, what it is what, not to belong. No, I understand that. I, I understand that. I, I completely. And then I came to that. England. Yes, and yes, they would yes. call me Packy, and they would call me Coon, and I would, and I'd think, well, actually, I'm Canadian. <laughs> <That's> what <laughs> <I think>. <laughs> <laughs> but what have you done, Catherine? With your maybe, maybe I should know the answer to this question because I can hear it, but. I mean, the anger of being called Packy and Coon and the, the, what that does as a, you know, not being the girl that's picked in the dance and so forth. What did you do with that anger? How do you... How, because that anger, that that stays within someone. That, that shapes them. Well, that, you say that. You know, the thing is, is that I think one of the... It does hurt. Of course it hurts to be racially abused and so on. I've been called many other names, I can tell you. And it's not something I normally talk about because I think... That if you let it uh, take over, then and you internalize that, um, it it can make it really difficult to again succeed in life because of the whole victimhood thing. So I'm very much against this uh, the indulgence of victimhood, and what I mean by that is ethnic minorities, black people who uh, are regularly. Um, talking all the time about how oppressed they are because if that's all you're ever talking about it's very hard are you really just to saying, succeed but are you just saying i mean i'm terribly moved by what you've said but are you just saying about it sort of get over it 
Is it? Is the? Is the? Is the? Is that? Sort of. Yeah. I mean, look, that, I mean I that doesn't that... sound. That doesn't. I mean, with the sort of the importance of what you're saying, and it is terribly important. The get over it type of thing. It just sounds a little bit. I tell you why. It doesn't sound... I tell you why we have to say that. <clears throat> because if we don't say that, then we will not succeed as a people. And when I say as a people, I mean as a, a multicultural community that Britain is, which is something that we should celebrate and it's really great. But unless we can all pull together, we will not succeed. And black people won't succeed. So what I mean by that is if you are indulging yourselves, it's, it's human nature to want to find an excuse or a reason for why you haven't succeeded at something. It's just human nature. And right now we've got this Olympics for victimhood that goes on. So, you know, if you're black, if you're female, oh, if you're gay, if you're disabled, <clears throat> all this stuff. And the more you are, the higher up I, I, you I, are on that victim pole. Right? I understand. I understand that. But I'm trying to just I'm just trying to get at one particular thing. Be- because this is because so much of what you say, I want to stand up and applaud. OK, the bit that doesn't ring true to me. Mm-hmm. OK, and I buy all, all, all of this, mm-hmm. okay? But the bit that doesn't ring true to me is that just get on with it, okay, is a psychologically... I suppose I've done too much psychobabble, okay, but is a, but it, but is a sort of like... Um, the word healthy, I don't know if that's the right word, is a sort of... Um, that, that, it, that, it, that all of that pain goes somewhere. You know, well, it and should you can't... go into hard work. Listen, I see. if I see. if you if you don't, it's it's you're saying the, the alternative is let's just put loads of black people in prison. I mean that that's that's the end result, right? Because if you indulge in victimhood all the time, you cannot succeed. The only thing you can do is. You know, look, I tell you, every black person, the, any black successful person you meet, they will always tell you that their parents told them that they had to be better, they had to be twice as good. That, that's what they'll all have been told, right? Every single one of them. They'll all have been told you have to be twice. I remember having this conversation with David Lammy once and he said, yeah, I was told that. You're always told that. You have to be twice as good. Twice as good. And, the, and, and so what happens is you're driven and you work hard to overcome. And so this idea of stoicism and, and, and proving yourself. Yeah. Now, I understand that from... Uh, the kind of benevolent, uh, powerful white person who looks down on that, they go, oh, this is unfair. You know, no, no, I'm not making person but, shouldn't have but, to kind of but be Catherine, so But I'm not making that point. Right? I'm not making that point at all. I'm making an entirely different point. And it's a question, which is to say that uh, in the trajectory you describe, which I think is probably the right trajectory for people to take, I just imagine that there is some psychological cost mm-hmm. or leftover, some yeah. sort of leftover of that, that happens here. Yeah. And I'm just trying to work out where it goes. Look, of course there is. And and, and, and uh, when people talk about absent fathers and the black community that is broken in so many different ways, that's where it goes, right? Um, there are costs. Of course there are. And there are costs to the terrible racism that black people have suffered uh, in Britain over you know decades. I mean, well, longer than that, obviously, but I mean, more recently, I'm just talking over decades. Um, there are costs to that. But the bigger cost now is the, the benevolent um, leftist 
who thinks that they are helping ethnic minorities and they are not. By indulging victimhood and by encouraging this mindset, which is, I don't want to tell you to just get on with it because I feel uncomfortable as a white person saying that. I understand um, that. It's very good. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, it's okay, little black boy, for not bringing in your yep. homework because I know that you're at home with your single black mom and you live on that estate. And so I feel guilty for my own privilege. So I'm going to let you go on this. And I get where the sentiment comes from. It's a kind sentiment. But I'm telling you, you're killing us with kindness. Right? <laughs> that is what's going on. And the thing is, I, I've learned this yeah, yeah. over the many years of teaching, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. I didn't think this at the beginning. And people, you know, on Twitter and so on, they'll say, oh, she's just a Tory, etc. First of all, I'm not a member of the Conservative Party. Yeah. Um, I have voted Conservative, but, you know, I could easily not vote Conservative. Yeah. I am a floating yeah. voter. And I know, tell you why I'm a floating voter, because I believe all ethnic minorities would be an ethnic, uh, 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 um, a floating voter, because otherwise our vote is just taken for granted. If Labour know that we're all going to vote Labour, well, why would Labour ever vote uh, work for our vote? And if Conservative, if the Conservative Party know we're always going to vote Labour, well, then why would they bother with us either, right? Well, I'm, I, I'm sure that you scare the shit out of your kids because you scare the shit out of me. <laughs> Just... <laughs> 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 Let's talk about discipline and how it works. Right. Um, and so, uh, and I suppose I'm interested in, in school discipline uh, from the perspective of somebody who, uh, I was, I, you know, I, I was trouble, proper trouble at school. Right. Um, and and, and uh, was beaten all the time and uh, all of that sort of stuff. And I, I, I suppose it took me a long time before I made my peace with books and learning way after school mm. because, um, and I did in the end, but it was it was long after school. Right. Um, and uh, so I think I, I, I wonder whether I would have been the sort of kid that would end up being kicked out of Michaela. No. In fact, you would have been you, would have been you much earlier on. Okay. So what we do... I always say, think of us like a personal trainer. When you go to the gym and you're trying to do those push-ups, they're really hard. So you hire somebody to stand over you going, come on, come on. And every time you're about to hit the ground, they say, do another one, do another one. <laughs> and they're shouting at you. And they're, they, they, it feels like they're being horrible to you in the moment, right? But you want them there because that's how they're going to get you through, right? It's the same thing with the school. I say that to parents all the time. And I'll be saying, I'll say to parents, I'm going to tell you when you're being a bad parent. I'm going to tell you when you're letting your child down. And you're not going to like it. But the fact is, by me constantly going, rah, 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 rah at you, your child is going to come up better at the end. So we're like a personal trainer in that sense. And you would have been you much earlier on because, I mean, to be honest, with the kids, I mean, that's with the parents where I'm going rah, rah, rah. With the kids, we don't have to do that. It just becomes habit. It just becomes normal. But it's not, so, so it's not, I mean, uh, but I, I felt that there was a lot of, I mean, this is the last question about me, but I, I felt like the, the use of violence particularly, which there was, you know, I, I was constantly subjected to uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, an, as, as a way of encouraging you to be this, which seemed to me the most extreme form of encouragement, mm. was just like absolutely useless as a way. You know, I felt like I, I was under most extreme pressure to, uh, uh, of the coach to do well. Okay. And my reaction to it was like... No, 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 no. Okay. Balls to you. So those are the parents I'm talking about. When it comes to the kids... That's because you were already in a chaotic environment. And when you're already in a chaotic environment, the only thing that's going to work is some army sergeant marching and going, rah, rah, rah. We don't do that at school. We don't have to do that because the bad behaviour just never comes. So what I mean is you don't get children telling you to F off. You don't get children running out of classrooms. You don't get kids throwing desks over and so on, which happens normally in schools. I went to stuff... posh school. I didn't have any of that. Right. Oh, I didn't I see, have any I of that. So I didn't what, have any of that at all. No, no, no. So what no, were I you like? What did you do? I, it's it was just so like awful. my reaction was a reaction to authority. 
So this was I was you know this was this was posh. I went away to boarding school at seven. Mm -hmm. There was no chaos. In fact, quite the opposite. It was absolute rigid order. We used to go marching mm -hmm. on, uh, you know, every week. So how week did you rebel? So how did you demonstrate your rebellion? I, I, I was. Uh, uh, I didn't do any work. I was truculent. I was. Uh, uh, refused to comply with authority. Like what? To give me an example of the kind of oh, thing you do. I was do. a kid, but I mean, I can't remember. But I mean, I'd run away a few times. Uh, uh, I wouldn't be interested in any of the work. I, and I, in, the I end, in, the, in, in the end, I would I associated my uh, teachers hmm. with this, a certain sort of authority. Yeah, well, I that suspect was... that in your school, I mean, given what I know of that type of school in yeah. those days as well, um, is that... There wasn't necessarily much happiness. And what I mean by that None. is, yeah, what I mean by that is, for instance, for every demerit we give out, teachers are giving out about seven or eight merits, right? So that's, that's and, and, and this is tracked. And I, I look at it myself to see, to make sure that the teachers are hitting those numbers. Um, uh, you know, I have a piece of paper that, you know, has everybody printed out on. Um, the on Friday, the end of term, we will have, and we do this every term, there's a prize presentation. The kids come up, they get loads of different badges, bronze, silver, gold, sports badges, a whole variety of different badges and certificates for their various achievements. Um, the teachers and the children have a wonderful relationship and there's real love in, in the school, real love. We just had a trip to, to France and Belgium and they came back on the weekend and uh, this morning one of my uh, my head of sixth form who went, she was she was actually, she was nearly in tears talking about how wonderful the children were and how happy it was and how, how loving. It, 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 there's just a real love for the children. So you didn't have that. Um, you, need to, you need to balance it. On the one hand, you have all the praise and the love and the genuine kind of adoration for the children. And it's genuine, right? And it's genuine because the children are just so lovable because they are well behaved and they, they love their teachers for giving them a structure that is tight enough, which allows them to be kids. So what I mean by that is it, one of the things that visitors are always struck by is how many kids have their hands up in lessons. They can't believe it. So many kids have their hands up. So many kids are enthusiastic and really want to answer. Why is that? Because the kids feel safe at our school. Uh, elsewhere, what can happen is that the child feels, well, oh, I don't want to be teacher's pet. I don't want to look like a nerd. Oh, well, I better just um, keep my hand down because the, the pressure of the bullying that takes place elsewhere to not be clever uh, consumes that child. And, how do, you, and how, how, do you, how do you inculcate that culture of it's OK to be clever, it's OK to want to learn? What's the, what well, are the you key? celebrate that learning all the time. You, you constantly celebrate it. And in the first place, you have an environment that's calm. That's my point. So you would have been you earlier, not because anyone was shouting at you, but just because it, you would have wanted to achieve. You would have wanted to be, you know, uh, the person with your hand up all the time. And, and you, you, would have, you would have enjoyed getting up and getting prizes. The kids love that sort of thing. Um, and the environment is one where there's silence in the corridors and that's something to be celebrated. It's not, it's not oppressive. It's lovely. It's liberating. So do you exclude many kids in order for this to... No. no. I mean, look, uh, there are kids who uh, might be, you know, for two days or something, they're out for a couple of days because something's happened. Um, but no, not on a permanent basis. In fact, we take in children from elsewhere. So I have had to exclude a few, but we're talking, you know, all on my, one, one hand. Um 
the the kids that we've taken in from elsewhere, kids who've been permanently excluded for from one or two other schools that we've taken in, whose lives have transformed with us and who have turned themselves around. Uh, kids who, I mean, I think about one boy who's just left us now, uh, excluded from two institutions. Uh, he's he's going to get GCSEs. He's... Perhaps it's perhaps it's worth saying for people who don't know Michaela. Perhaps it's worth describing your catchment area and yeah. sort of. So it's a that... tough intake. You know, it's inner city. We will regularly get. Um, all sorts of kids outside threatening our kids, uh, kids who sh- boys who show up on bicycles with masks, holding knives, waiting to meet our boys. One of our year 11 boys, wow. he came out of his exam, went outside. A bunch of other boys from another school rushed him, stabbed him with a compass. That is the kind of thing I'm constantly warning my staff, saying do not get yourselves involved to the point where your lives are in danger when you're outside. I am genuinely worried about their safety, my staff's safety, when they're out on the streets. This is the inner city. There are gangs. There there are knives. This is normal. It's what we do. You know, not only that, but there are beggars outside uh, with uh, taking heroin. There are needles, broken needles that I find. I mean, like this is the inner city, right? It's my um, church too. And people who, exactly, it's your church. I mean, and, and it's hilarious because people who then come and visit and or they don't like us and they're just ideological about us, they say, well, they obviously have an easy intake. I mean, this is just absurd. Uh, <laughs> you, you're not going to find a tougher place in, in, in Britain. I mean, there are other tough areas. This is one of them. Um, and our kids when you come inside though that's the thing you come inside and you think oh my goodness and you must come and visit us because the kids are polite they have articulate conversations at lunch they serve food to each other they look after each other because the thing I'm most proud of I mean, yes, there is the academic stuff, but I'm not that proud of that. I'm more proud of the people who they're going to become. They are polite. They are nice. They look after each other. We say work hard, be kind. That's our motto. And we get we, we do our best to get them working hard. And that is a struggle because families are not necessarily supportive of the work hard ethos. And in particular in this day and age with smartphones, when the kids can be on there for seven hours once they walk out the door, and some of them are for hours and hours, and then they're up all night. You ban phones from school, don't you? We ban them from school, but I wish I could just ban them all together. <laughs> I mean, I do. And you know why? Because they're ruining these children's lives, right? And I I, I heard myself to... I mean, I've got quite a few kids and I heard myself say to my kids, why can't you watch more television? (laughs) And I remember the golden days when people used to sit together and watch television. I used to. And people then were going, but people then were going, oh, television is ruining everybody. Compared to television... That's right. But not only is it that they could sit around together as a family and watch, but Coronation Street has a narrative. It goes up and down and then, you know, so-and-so leaves the wife for the girlfriend, then doesn't like the girlfriend, goes back to the wife, whatever. You know, you have you have that arc that goes on with on on, on Instagram and WhatsApp. There there aren't there are no stories. The stories are, are 20 seconds long. Oh, uh, look at that fat man in the in Tesco, recorded for 20 seconds, boom, that's it. You know, like that yeah, that yeah. is what um yeah. that's what they're looking at and yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and it teaches them to be horrible, to be insulting, as I just said, you know, just how I said the fat man, because that's how they talk. And in fact, I'm being very polite in comparison to the yes, words yes, that yes, they yes, use. Yes, you know, yes, yes. It's absolutely horrifying. And, and parents don't realise. And often, especially in this now, like in 20 years, this won't be the case, but it is now, the parents are not as tech savvy as the children. The children are running rings around the parents, especially parents like ours. They're working two jobs. They're not there in the evening. Um, or the parent isn't really that checked in with the child, so they just don't know what's going on. Influ- an influence of porn on these kids? It's awful. As I say to the parents all the time, once upon a time we used to put the porn magazines up at the top shelf. Now, you give all your 13-year-old boys a device that's going to give them access to porn. You show me the 13-year-old boy who has an access, has access to porn and doesn't look at it. And this isn't just a magazine. This is now in video form. I mean, it's horrifying. And when I say this to parents, they all look at me and go, 
Oh, yeah. Because they don't know. They don't realise. And the, oh, the stuff they're watching on Netflix, the movies and the things, the terrible things they're being taught about sex, but not everything. So that is, that's my biggest challenge, actually, is what goes on in the home and the access to smartphones. That's my biggest challenge. In terms of the actual school, we've got amazing teachers. I mean, you should see the staff at Michaela. They're absolutely brilliant. I mean, I, I have so much respect for them. They're just brilliant. Brilliant. And, um, and so we've got amazing teachers. We've got fantastic discipline. The children are bought into it. What I always say is this idea that people are marching around like bouncers. You cannot run a school like that. You have got to have 85, 95% of the kids with you. They have to buy into it. The detentions keep your 5, 10%, right, on the outskirts in line, right? (laughs) And it makes sure that those 5, 10% cannot ruin the learning for everybody else, right? Mm. But the rest of them, you come in and talk to them, they'll all tell you, yeah, 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 it's really strict, but we're so happy it's strict. They like it because they know from their primary experience what the alternative, and those who have joined us halfway through secondary school, they definitely know. What you say uh, is very persuasive to me, but to the educational establishment, which is, uh, there is such a thing, yeah. I imagine, well, they do, don't they? They don't, they don't like this sort of stuff at all, do they? No. And of course, we're not the only school that does this sort of thing. I mean, there's Mossborn before us and there's, you know, academy chains like Arc or Harris and so on. They go in and they take they take failing schools and they turn them around. And how do they turn them around? By doing exactly this sort of thing. I would say the big thing that distinguishes us, because the behavior stuff is actually pretty run of the mill, I'd say, in terms of some other schools. What really distinguishes us is the whole knowledge thing about how we stand at the front of the class and we teach. And I always say the teacher is driving the bus and the children get on the bus with the teacher and the teacher decides where the destination is. Uh, in the last oh, 40, 50 years, um, it's become far more normal for, the, for what we call child-centred learning to happen, where the child is deciding where to lead his learning. And this isn't just at secondary school. I mean, this is at, if you go into a reception class anywhere and so on, you will find um, stations where the children decide what station to go. Oh, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to do Lego. Now I'm going to go over there and do colouring. And it's the child that's leading his learning. And I always think the teacher knows more than the child. And there's nothing wrong with that. And the idea of authority that you were talking about before, it's become a kind of bad word that nobody can use nowadays. But it's right that the parent and that the teacher should be in a position of authority. Um, Too often parents are uncomfortable with that and they want to be friends with their kids. And that is wrong. You're not there to be friends as a teacher or a parent with the child. You're there. You want admiration. You want respect. You do not want friendly um, friendship. That friendship is bad um, because you are leading them. <laughs> it is. In this case, it's bad. It's bad. And now, admiration is not. Respect is not. And yeah, the thing yeah. is, they will, if you're friends with them, they will not respect you. They just won't. So and that's, the, that's the anti-trendy teacher type of spiel, really, isn't it? Who wants to be mates with all the kids. You mustn't be mates. And, you know, one of the sad things about headship for me, for instance, is that I love the relationship between teacher and pupil. Um, you know, the, the little year sevens, when I had my little year seven tutor group in the day, and um, they would call you, by mistake, they call you mum instead of miss. And, you know, like, they're just lovely. And I, there's nothing I love more than a bottom set year seven group to teach. But... And I don't do it that anymore. And in fact, I'm because I'm the headmistress, I always say I'm like the Wizard of Oz. And so I'm mysterious and they don't really know. And there's <laughs> this the thing. What is yeah. she doing? Exactly, exactly. And it means I have to keep some distance from the children. And I deliberately keep that distance so because I feel it empowers my teachers. So if they were to use my name or if they were to say, Miss Purple Singh has made this decision, it feels like it's coming down from up on high, you know. Um, and that means I have to keep my distance, which I don't like. I, I love children, you know, but that's my role and that's my duty. Um, it, it's just 
it's all a bit of a smoke and mirrors game that you play in, in school uh, to keep the kids there. As I always say, you know, there's more of them than there and, are of and us. Have you found it difficult to recruit? Uh... Yes, it's very hard. Very, very hard to recruit. Um, it, 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 I mean, that's the case with all schools. It's very hard. Uh, and I mean, well, we're advertising round the clock all the time. Um, and it, it's hard also to find people who get the get, vision get what we're about and and our teachers all get what we're about um i'm very much about that cohesion um you know i mean i think good leadership is about making sure that all of your people are singing from the same hymn sheet and so we definitely do that um and i spend most of my time doing that actually is getting staff on board and having conversations with them you came to national prominence with the tory party yes. conference speech was that two 10, 2010. Was that 2010? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're Mike, Michael Gove's darling. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, at the time. <laughs> I don't know what he thinks of me now. <laughs> what was your reaction to that, uh, to yeah. that speech? Well, I mean, um, you know, I was just a bit stupid. Uh, I didn't really know about political conferences. I was a teacher. I used to mock all the time. I was just working constantly. And... Um, and then I was asked to go along to this thing and I thought, yeah, why not? Um, I did know what I was saying was a bit naughty. Um, I mean, obviously I knew what I was saying was naughty, but um, I didn't expect all of what What was happened. naughty about what you were saying? Well, I was just telling the truth. And well, what um, was naughty? I don't, I mean, just remind me. Well, I said, for instance, that black children fail because of what uh, the well-meaning liberal does to, to them. You know, okay. I, I, I'm saying the same stuff I'm saying now, really. I, I was talking about excuses being made for children. You know, uh, I have anger management. Uh, you know, uh, you can't, you don't discipline me. It's not my fault. It's anger management's fault. You know, that sort of thing uh, is, is the sort of thing I, I rail against now as well. Um, and I suppose the reason why they gave me a standing ovation, that's what happened. They gave me a standing ovation and then suddenly the press turned on me. Um, and in those days, of course, I was just a teacher. Nobody knew who I was. Uh, nowadays, it's a bit different. You know, I get on the tube and I can see people looking at me and thinking, who is she? I've seen her somewhere before. And I do miss the, anonym- the anonymity of my old life. Um, and how did, how, did the, um, how did that go down with your colleagues at yeah. the school that you were working in at the time? Yeah, well, I don't really know, to be honest, because um, I was sent home uh, and then I never saw them again. Um, you, you were... Well, I mean, I resigned in the end, but um, it was, uh, yeah, uh, it, it was just, the whole thing became untenable. I mean, it was kind of no one's fault in that the press just went crazy. Uh, the press went crazy because ultimately they were sort of saying, look, you know, uh, teacher tells the truth. And, you know, the right wing press went crazy, really. Uh, teacher tells the truth and um, and then she gets suspended. I mean, that, that was the, the that, that was the, the, the kind of line that was out there. Um and, and and it was just one of those terrible things. I don't think it was anyone's fault. The, the, really. the, I mean, I, I suppose I'm, I'm, the reason I'm asking this is that I know I know the school that you're at because it's it's about half a mile from yes. where my parish is. Yes, and so yes, forth. yes. And your speech did have an impact on the school, yes. didn't it? Yeah. Well, I say that you say that. I don't know. I don't know if it did. I think some people say it did. But the, before I gave that speech, the school was in dire straits. I mean, it, nobody wanted to go to it. It was it was a it was it was it, it was it was it was, an, it was and a, lots of people took that kids away after your speech no 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 there was the the, the school was half empty before i mean it's it's always been uh, it had always been a very difficult school so the school i was talking about originally um where i took that uh the 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 teacher to diane abbott's event remember i was saying that mm. was just around the corner from that school and in the day when we worked at that school i remember we always used to say if you want to behave like that you can go to that school like <laughs> everybody knew that it was the sink school it's always been the sink school uh, i don't think it is anymore arc took it over and have turned it round and it's a really successful school now That's true. but in the day 
it was it had it had been for twenty years. It had been the sync school, and when I joined it and was there, uh, it was it was struggling to get people in. I mean, I was one of the, I was going around knocking on people's doors trying to persuade them to 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 come to the school. How do you um the the so Michaela attracts lots of press attention. I mean, you know, you've got the BBC coming tomorrow. You you do yeah, this all yeah, the time, yeah. and people are very interested in what you're doing. And how would it be possible if 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 a, an administration, a new administration, came in and wanted to do something serious about education in this country, and wanted to learn from what's going on in Michaela? Mm. Um, if I'm the new education secretary, what is it you're telling me to do? That's a good question. Um, well. Uh, one, I think discipline needs to be taken really seriously. If you don't have discipline and uniform and, you know, uh, think about Giuliani and the uh, and the subway cars, getting the graffiti off the subway cars in, in New York, and that totally transformed New York. You know, it's a broken windows theory. If there's one broken window, the other broken windows will, the other windows will get broken in an abandoned house. If there are no broken windows, then the house stays intact. All the windows will stay intact. It's the same thing in a school. Uh, uniform needs to be immaculate and you need to have a behavior system that is the same in every classroom. We have one demerit, two demerits, attention. You know, it's the same system. Children like routine. <laughs> you scare the hell out of me. <laughs> children like, wait, and you say that, but the children don't find it scary. Yeah. The children love the routine. They love the predictability about it. And once they know that, they know where they stand. So if they choose to misbehave, you got your demerit, that's a warning. Oh, you're doing something else wrong second time. Oh, well, I know, I'm taking the risk. I'm going to get a detention now. <clears throat> and because it's the same in every classroom, it just becomes habit. So you have to get that stuff right in the first instance. Then, and of course, the government are trying now. You know, Tom Bennett is running, uh, you know, the behavior czar, they call him, is running all, all of this behavior stuff across the across the country. And also, I have to say that, you know, it doesn't just come from the top. One of the things that I believe in is this idea of organic change. So we have up to 10 teachers visiting us every single day from across the country. In fact, across the world. We get people from America, from Australia, New Zealand, all over the place. And um, but mainly Britain. And they come and they take ideas and they take them back to their schools. And I know Michaela ideas are all over the country now. So and, and I get letters from people telling me how grateful they are and how things have changed for them. Sometimes it's a classroom teacher who has changed her practice in her classroom. Sometimes it's a head teacher and she's changed the, the, the whole school in various ways. So first it's the discipline thing. Then it's the way in which uh, we teach and the content. So there's two things. There's the content of what's taught and then there's the way in which we teach. So uh, they call it direct instruction. Explicit instruction is the, is the kind of term. And what that means is you stand at the front and you tell the kids what they need to know. And what I always say to teachers is you feel like it's cheating, but it's not cheating. It's teaching. That's what it is to teach. It's to tell kids what, what, what you know. Now, that might sound odd to someone of your age because you think, well, of course, that's what you do. You tell, you know, what else does the teacher do? Nowadays, the teacher doesn't really tell the kids. The teacher thinks that that's somehow cheating to tell the kids. So what they do is they put them in groups and then you're a facilitator of learning who monk, moves amongst the desks, keeping <clears throat> them on task. Or you stand up at the front of the class and you ask them questions and you play this game that's what we call guess what's in my head. So you know the answer. The kids don't know the answer. And you say, so everybody, tell me this. And maybe one person tries. No, 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 nearly there. It's a bit oh, of a power trick there. though, isn't it? It's There's a very, bizarre. very strange power dynamic about it when you know what the answer is, but you're not telling people what the answer is. Well, and you're going, come on, come on, yeah. no, it's not that, come on, it's... I, but I don't I, think I don't think it's because the teacher wants is a power thing. No, 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 but no, think... no, it's not a power... No, I don't mean that. I mean, it, but, but it, as, as, as one of the... Uh, 
as a, from a student perspective, mm-hmm. you actually feel like I I want you to tell me. Yeah, I actually want you to exactly. tell me. I don't want you to humiliate me exactly. by going. Uh, what's the exactly. answer? What's the answer? Okay, well I think it's this. exactly. But the teacher thinks it all starts with Rousseau. Rousseau said that the idea was that the child has it in them, and you have to draw it out. So that's what the teacher's trying to do. He's trying to draw out what's inside the child, when in fact the teacher's responsibility is to put it into the child. Yes, yes and they don't yes, get that. Yes, yes, and so what yes, ends up happening is little Amy at the front is always yes. answering the questions. Why? Because she was already taught it at home. Because Amy's mom and dad sit at dinner table with her every night and talk about the politics of the day, and they have their books. Line, line the walls and so Amy knows all the answers and Amy always answers but little Johnny at the back he looks at Amy and thinks gosh well Amy's really clever what he doesn't think because he comes from a, a working class background and there are no books at home and you know he's just with his mom and they're, they, she, she, she's often not around because she's working or whatever it is so he doesn't think to himself oh I know the reason why Amy knows all the answers is because I'm from a different socioeconomic background he doesn't think that what he thinks is I'm just really dumb, is what he thinks. And because Johnny feels dumb and humiliated, Johnny, in order to gain back some self-respect, starts tapping Jack and starts tapping Tom. And then they all start misbehaving. And then the teacher says, right, Johnny, out. And Johnny's constantly out of lessons, so it means he falls further and further behind. And when that boy ends up carrying a knife in the streets, (laughs) that's where, that's where it happens. So all this begs the question, how much can you do at a school if you're if you don't have the parents with you, yeah. If you don't have that's a very good question. If you if you don't yeah. have a culture where little Johnny's being raised with books, there'll always be that disparity between those parents who are books, yeah. No social media and telly, that's sit right. At the table and so that and, and that's absolutely right. And the school can only do so much. So you know, I said to my year 11s many times in uh, assembly the last several months, I said to them, you know what, I'm going to sleep well at night. And the reason I'll sleep well at night is that. Uh, I've given you everything. You have got the best possible teachers. They're teaching you in the right kind of way. You have learned as much as you can from them. You have got wonderful behavior here. Uh, There's nothing more I can give you. If you aren't going to do the work that's required at home, well, that's on you because I've given you everything. So I'm not going to lose any sleep. It's up to you whether or not you're going to do that work at home. And what is sad is that some of them just didn't do enough. I mean, and, some and of them And mum and dad is not supportive. Because mum and dad are not behind their children. They're just not. And that stupid smartphone. That smartphone is destroying those kids' lives because there's only so much that we can do. And that's why I feel there needs to be a government campaign against smartphones for children, right? Where we're informing parents of what is happening. Because like we had a, a government campaign of five fruit and veg, for instance. We there, there are campaigns against smoking, against obesity, all sorts. Well, why don't we have it against smartphones for children? Because it's a new technology. That's why. And because it's a new technology... Well, people fetishise new technology. Yeah, and also, exactly. Apple is a very powerful organisation. Exactly. But I'm telling you, in 20 years, they will... People are going to do it in 20 years because they're going to see the damage. We haven't seen it yet, right? Those toddlers with the phones from the age two, they haven't come through yet, right? They haven't come through. So when they come through, my God, and this, those smartphones are going to exacerbate the divide between the rich and the poor. I see it happening on the ground every day. Um, so, you know, in terms of what else they could do, like I say, the, the way in which they teach, and then there are just other things. We teach gratitude, for instance. We teach the children to be grateful because whatever your situation is in life, 
there are always people who are worse off than you. And that's the exact opposite to the whole victimhood point, right? Which is that rather than march around saying life is really hard for me, I come from the inner city, I hate, I, I hate my country because it's against me, you think, actually, I'm really proud to be British. And yeah, I don't have a lot now, but I'm going to have a lot one day because I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to get myself there. And I know that just sounds like I'm saying pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But the fact is, that's all you got. Right? You, either you start pulling yourself up or you end up in prison, right? And those are the two choices in life, right? And there's nothing else we can do about it. And it's all very nice for the benevolent rich to look down and say, oh, but how can we help? I'll tell you how you can help. Hold us to higher standards. Insist that the schools get better because school is the one way out for these kids, right? It's the one way. And if our schools are too busy indulging the kids with their victimhood mentality, those kids will never get anywhere. Catherine Burblesing, <laughs> it's really great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. <laughs>